In our last episode on the Discover the Word podcast, we started a two-part study of amazing moments with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Leading the group, Bill Crowder. Mark is a very action-oriented gospel, as you know, and one of his favorite words, at least the way it translates into English, is the word amazed. Uh, We're going to find over these two weeks that there are nine times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says or does something and it says the crowd was amazed or the individual he was dealing with was amazed. And so as we return to this topic for part two, let's continue to consider these amazing moments in the book of Mark. Now, Mark, John Mark, wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, but as a member of the Christian community, Mark had a friendship with Peter who was most likely the source for the content in much of Mark's writings. These were Peter's recollections. And so we've already talked about a crowd being amazed by Jesus' teachings, people being amazed by the way he performed miracles, and amazed at what he had authority over when he healed a man who was demon-possessed. So let's now head into part two of this study with Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Rasul Berry, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Pull your chair up to the table and we'll continue our study of amazing moments in Mark with a passage that talks about how people were shocked and amazed by the way Jesus answered a question that someone asked. Have you ever been with someone you thought you knew really well and they did or said something that just surprised you because it seemed really out of character for them. Hmm. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. One night, Marlene and I were watching the news, and there was a report about something, and I just asked her, what do you think about all that? And her response just floored me. I mean, it was so far out of what I understood her character to be, not in a bad way or an evil way, it was just <laughs> unexpected okay. way. And I said, you know, in a million years, I could have never expected you to say something like that. And her very wifely response was, well, it's your job to figure me out, and it's my job to keep you guessing. Oh, that's good. (laughs) And I said, okay, you win. You're winning right now. (laughs) Uh, That helps me think of one, though. One time, Rebecca and I were talking about the things that we love about each other. And her response to me was, you bugged me the most. (laughs) I was like, is that a compliment? And she meant it as one. And it was just like, we've been together long enough now and have this relationship where I bug her the most, but in a way that she finds affectionate, which is lovely. No, I get that. I get that. I remember I had this moment. uh, We were at Virginia beach. I was on the beach with my daughter. She was about eight at the time. Mm. And it was some really choppy currents. And so the uh, current blew like push my wedding ring off my finger. Oh no. So I'm like diving and the frustrating thing is I, I could see the ring but the current kept pushing me back from being able to grab it. Mm. And so it was gone. <gasps> and I was like frantic, you know, yeah. and I, when I'm going to tell my wife and she turned and she said, "You still have me, daddy." Oh. <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, you're right." <laughs> and that's enough. That's beautiful. <laughs> and it just made me feel better. Yeah. yeah. That was lovely. She was like, "It's okay." Yeah. And I was surprised by that. I was mm-hmm. not expecting her to mm-hmm. try to comfort me in yeah. this time mm-hmm. of distress. I was just thinking my ring is gone. And what a wise perspective. It yeah. was. Yeah. 
For our conversation this time, we're still looking at amazing moments in Mark, and we're actually starting to get closer toward the end of Jesus's ministry. So put yourself in the place of the disciples. They've been walking with Jesus for a couple of years now. I mean, living in his presence kind of 24-7. So Mm. by now... I kind of feel like these guys probably think they know Jesus pretty well. And something happens, and Jesus makes a comment, and they're just flabbergasted by Hmm. his comment. And as we will see, they are amazed Amazed. by it. Um, So what happens is the event that's known as the rich young ruler. So, Rasul, can you net that out for us, what happens? Yes. So there's a rich young ruler who approaches Jesus and asks about what, he could do to inherit eternal life or enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, he seems to have all the boxes checked off and doing all the right things. And Jesus tells him to sell everything he has and give it to the poor and follow me. Yeah. And the rich young ruler goes away sad because he's not willing to do that. And the disciples are shocked because in that time period, the idea of someone being wealthy was a sign of God's blessing of mm-hmm. this person clearly was aligned to the law, to the law and favored. Yeah. yeah. And so it seemed like he had all the stats. He had all the qualifications mm-hmm. that this is the exact representation of the type of person that would be okay with God. Mm-hmm. So for him to walk away sad and for Jesus's standard to be not enough, they were just completely yeah. amazed mm-hmm. and perplexed. Yeah. What's interesting about the encounter Jesus has with this rich young ruler. This this story appears in, I think, three of the Gospels. And in one of them, we're told he was young. In another, we're told he was mm. an archon or a leader of some kind. And all of them say that he was rich, that he mm-hmm. had much possessions. That's where the rich young ruler tag kind of mm. comes from. And what's interesting, too, is the first person shocked by words is he's shocked by what Jesus says. Yeah. And it's probably because he's not heard in his life in a long time or maybe never that you lack something. And Jesus says, there's one thing you lack, sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked, which is a version of amazement Mm -hmm. as well, but went away grieving. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I really love about this particular story, we've talked about this in some other conversations about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. In John 11, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And you don't get that kind of direct statement in the Gospels very often about Jesus loving an individual. I mean, we know Jesus did, but that kind of direct connection of love with an individual, we don't see that a lot stated in the Gospels. And here it says, you know, the guy says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus makes a statement that if I would have made it in Evangelism 101, I would have failed the class. He says, keep the law. (laughs) And the guy says, I have. I've kept it from my youth up. And it says, and looking at him, Jesus loved him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that it says that Jesus loved him tells me that there was some level of sincerity in this young man saying, yeah, I've done all that ever since I was a kid. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, I hear him say that and I think, yeah, right, buddy. But Jesus looked at him with a loving response Mm -hmm. and then said, one thing you lack. And the man went away grieved for he owned much property. Now we're going to hear the words that Jesus says that are going to amaze his disciples. Elisa, read verse 23, and then Daniel, if you would follow it up with verse 24. And Jesus, looking around, 
said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then verse 26, Elisa. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, Bill, um, we were talking in a previous conversation about definitions of amazed. Mm -hmm. And in my translation, the NRSV, 24, the disciples were perplexed Mm. at these words. Mm. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Mm. which I think gives a little more nuance to maybe what we're thinking of when we think of the words amazed. Yeah, and again, one translation uses the word surprised, another uses astonished. Mm -hmm. And again, all of those are nice little variations. It kind of colors the scene for us a little bit in a helpful way. Thank you, Daniel. The disciples are amazed at Jesus' words because of what you said earlier, Rasul. The general cultural understanding in first century Israel is if you were rich, it's because God really loved you. And so he gave you more than you could ever need. And so, of course, those people are going to get into the kingdom. And Jesus says, man, you got this thing all turned around. It's hard for them. Hmm. Now, why would it be hard for them from Jesus's view? Well, because part of what the story of the Bible invites us into is a a life of faith and trust in God. And oftentimes when we have the most are the times we tend to depend on ourselves, Mm -hmm. trust ourselves to provide, you know, when you have a a big savings account and everything in life seems to be going right. The old adages about, you know, you don't need God anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Wealth confuses us in that way. Yeah. I think about Proverbs 30, uh, 7 through 9 says, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty Mm. nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Mm. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of God. And so there's this sense in which there's this tendency that because wealth can give you the appearance and the illusion that you have control, that it can lead us to just a sense of Mm self-reliance instead of reliance on God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it insulates us from our need. We don't experience it. Now, what is it about Jesus's words about how difficult it is for the rich to enter into eternal life? What is it about those words other than the maybe the cultural ramifications sure. we're talking about? Why would that have amazed the disciples? Well, I mean, they go on to say, well, then who then can be saved? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it has something to do with if that's true of them, then how can anybody be rescued? So there is something going on in their imaginations right now of like trying to figure out how all this works. Yeah. And Peter goes on after Jesus says you have to give it up. He goes, we've left everything. To follow you. We've done it. That is so Peter. I mean, (laughs) I I love this guy. He is so Peter. Hey, what about me? You know, I've done my thing. I've gave up everything to follow you. Well, don't you think he's a little scared still? I mean, he's like, did I not do it right? No, I did do it right. Didn't I do it? Yeah. 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 And Jesus also kind of hints at following the law perfectly isn't going to get you there either. And so not only would they culturally have looked at abundance and blessings financially as favor from God, Mm -hmm. 
but they're in a world where it's literally defined as you're closest to God, you're righteous when you're doing all the right things according to Torah, according to the law. And so Jesus is kind of unnerved two key foundational ideas yeah. for them in this yeah. one story. Right. Yeah, I think that's really good. And I want to just throw one more thing on there because we're kind of speculating, but we're speculating with feet on the ground, right? Because mm-hmm. there are some things to support our speculating from the culture, from the text. I would throw in one more thing, and that is because they've been with Jesus for a couple of years, they're used to seeing him interact with a lot of people. They're not used to seeing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. First of all, I don't think they're accustomed to seeing people turning and walking away. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just hasn't happened very much. But as they've heard Jesus's words, and it's almost like Jesus was maybe being a little antagonistic to this guy. Yeah. Why do you have to be like that? You know, I mean, it's kind of like, why would you talk to him like that? You don't talk to people like that. Maybe it felt a little out of character. Yeah. And that contributed to the amazement. Yeah, I think so. Especially when you compare the rich young rulers questioning to the Pharisees questioning. Like it says that when he approached Jesus, he knelt, which was a sign of respect. He seemed genuine. Mm -hmm. Jesus responds in this way in which he loved him. And... I didn't get a sense that he was trying to set him up for a trap. He just was genuinely wanting to know. And so it was uncharacteristic. And then, of course, can we talk about the eye of a needle thing? (laughs) I mean, that's a, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. That's shocking to hear. Yeah, it's shocking because it is a hyperbolic impossibility. Right. And it's one of those statements that, not only is shocking, it was intended to shock. Right. Because as you were saying earlier, the presupposition was the rich have it easy here. They're going to have it easy there. They're going to have it easy getting there. That's just part of their birthright as the rich. And Jesus says, it is beyond impossible. Mm. And he uses this absurd illustration to show out just how impossible it really is. And as a result, the disciples in verse 26 are even more amazed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes truth hits us different, you know, and for, for this rich young ruler and for the disciples, they were not ready for this level of unvarnished truth that Jesus was putting before them that left to yourselves, you can't get there from here. Mm-hmm. Full stop. You can't. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, doesn't matter whether you're a lawkeeper or a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter if you're my disciple, but you're trying to do all this in your own strength. You can't get there from here. And for the disciples, I just wonder if part of the amazement is they're not used to hearing Jesus talk like this, except mm-hmm. maybe to the religious leaders. But it leads to a hugely important question How then can we be saved? Mm-hmm. And Jesus' answer, I think, is equally amazing and shocking. Well, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The work of salvation and rescue is God's work. Jonah chapter 2, the last verse says, salvation is of the Lord. And that's comforting. (laughs) That's comforting. Yeah, that is comforting because if it was left up to us, I think we'd find a way to mess it up. But it is God's work salvation is of the Lord. 
this is Discover the Word and part two of a series called Amazing Moments in Mark. And we're finding out that sometimes Jesus surprised and amazed even those closest to him, like the disciples, like he did with his answer to the rich young ruler. Well, in this next segment of the conversation, we're going to discover another amazing moment from the Gospel of Mark and why when people watched Jesus, they were amazed at how focused he was on his mission. And so what was his mission exactly? Let's find out. What do we mean when we say somebody is on mission? Mm. Well, in an office setting, it's usually somebody that's walking really fast through the hallway <laughs> <laughs> trying to get somewhere. And we're like, wow, they're walking with a mission or they're on mission. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and I'm going to think about when I'm having the family over, they just all roll their eyes when I start trying to create meaningful moments. <laughs> You know, they're like, there goes mom again. Smile for the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or just let's all share a thought about, you know, those kinds of things. Everybody tell what you're thankful Mm -hmm, for this year. mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I think uh, having been in missionary spaces and church planning spaces for a while, that phrase is a very used and maybe sometimes overused expression for someone who is really committed to the Great Commission and you know, this idea of being on missional or being on mission has mm-hmm. to do with trying to create, being wholly devoted to creating opportunities to proclaim the Great Commission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So to go to your example, Daniel, what are some indicators that somebody might be on mission? They're focused. Mm-hmm. They're um, intense sometimes. Yeah. Intentional. Sometimes they don't mean to, but they actually snub people or Mm -hmm. don't talk to people Mm -hmm. because they're so on mission. Mm -hmm. And I just want to push in here a little bit. Sometimes it's just our personalities (laughs) (laughs) because I'm totally that way. I'm just always driving for what's the next little box I can take off and thing I can accomplish. It's when you go to lunch with Elisa and she leads (laughs) off with not how's your family or something like that. She just asks you the deepest, hardest question she can right off the bat. Oh, hi, Daniel. (laughs) Nice to see you again. Hypothetically. Yeah. When you're around somebody like that who is somebody highly focused, (laughs) highly intense, highly determined, ultra mission focused. What kind of feelings does that stir in you? Are they good or are they bad? I'm going to be quiet now. (laughs) To encourage Elisa, sometimes that means we end up having a much deeper conversation than we probably would have had otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are times when someone who is on mission and has that kind of focus is very motivating and inspiring yeah. because yeah. we can sometimes get distracted and just someone being very intentional yeah. to say, this is what I'm doing can kind of help that process along. But it can be off-putting. It can yeah. be uncomfortable. It can hurt your feelings <laughs> at times, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, yeah but I mean, yeah. not even just hurting your feelings. Sometimes it can just feel awkward mm-hmm. yeah. because they are or so scary. Yeah. missional in their thinking. You wonder, you know. Or overbearing. Yeah. Just like, yo, give it a yeah. rest. Yeah. Like, like I'm That's good. That's all they want to talk about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and none of this is a conversation. You're not, you you catching strays <laughs> over here. Yeah. I mean, that was that. None of this is, none of this is directed at, at Lisa to our listeners. She's sitting here squirming all over the place. Yeah. Um, it's not but her. missional people can be off-putting. Yes. They really can. Yeah. And even if they don't mean to be, even mm-hmm. if their hearts are absolutely right and they're trying to do the right thing for the right reason, the level of intensity that accompanies that sometimes 
really can be awkward feeling. And as we come to our next amazing moment in Mark, it actually happens after the last one with the rich young ruler. And as we've seen, this is toward the end of Jesus's ministry, and he's actually on his way to Jerusalem. I mean, he's coming to the point where we're just a half a chapter away from the triumphal entry Hmm. in chapter 11. And Jesus is now on mission, and so so much so that scholars say that, and I know we're in Mark's gospel, but just as an example, some say that the primary feature of Luke's gospel is Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. And it starts in like chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and it carries all the way up until I think it's chapter 19 at the triumphal mm-hmm. entry. Mm-hmm. That's half the book. Wow. Mm-hmm. And everything that Luke packs into that journey to Jerusalem is a part of preparing the reader or the hearer for what's going to happen in Jerusalem, you know. And so the last encounter Jesus has with an individual before the triumphal entry is with Zacchaeus, in which Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's why he's going to Jerusalem, see. So we're at that point in Jesus's ministry where he is, as the King James used to say, his face is set as a flint mm-hmm. for Jerusalem. Love that. Know, that kind of focus and intensity. So with all that background in mind, Rasul, would you read Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34? Love to. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. That's his mission, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's his mission. And there are a lot of components of that that are really interesting. But even before he says all of that, you can kind of picture Jesus and his group of followers. And they're on the road heading toward Jerusalem. And Jesus is out front. And the disciples are following him probably struggling to keep up because Mm -hmm. he's on his way and it says as they were going up to jerusalem and jesus was walking on ahead of them they were amazed about what yeah Yeah, that's that's what i was thinking (laughs) man he is such a good walker like just the way he takes one step after the other (laughs) and just like what is the amazement and others are afraid yeah Mm -hmm. so and 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 you can't tie it directly back to the what precedes it. No. We don't know that it was that next minute. Mm-hmm. It just says yeah. they were on the way. Yeah. Yeah, unless that's just because of the way Mark is pulling the gospel together that he's trying to connect the two for yeah. us, mm-hmm. right? Like because of the flow, we wouldn't have had, you know, verse numbers there to yeah. know that a new thought is being created. So I guess maybe in the way he's putting it together, he wants us to think of that last story. Maybe. And as Which I read was it, the one we just talked about. Yeah. About and, it, yeah mm-hmm. and obviously contextually, there is a connection, whether there's an inherent connection story wise yeah. or meaning wise. Or in time. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But as I look at it, I mean, he's walking ahead of them and he's on point. He's out mm-hmm. front. He's in the vulnerable position. I mean, 
one of my sons was in the army for like 15 years and he did Iraq and Afghanistan. And when you're on patrol, the place you don't want to be is on point because you're the tip of the spear. You're going to be the first to make contact with the enemy. You're in the danger zone, the kill box. Yet Jesus is out front leading the charge up to Jerusalem. And then he tells them, and this is, by the way, the third time he tells them what's going to happen in Jerusalem when they get there. But if I remember correctly, I believe this is the first time that he's included the Roman authorities into it. Mm -hmm. The first two times, it's just the chief priests are going to have him killed. Here he says they're going to deliver him to the Gentiles. Yeah. And that's how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so there's nuance in those words, but those words come after they're amazed at him. And like we've said a couple of times in this series, we kind of are left to speculate because the text doesn't tell us. But I just wonder if there's something about the determination of his bearing mm-hmm. as he walks out ahead of everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, why are you in such a hurry? In well, our last conversation, we talked about that it might have felt like he was abrasive or too firm mm-hmm. in his response to the rich ruler. And they may have been amazed at the kind of res- the tone of his response, you know, and if that was the case, then he may be continuing now to act out that determination mm-hmm. as he's marching up to Jerusalem. So I could see that. Yeah, and I, I wonder if the story afterwards gives us a little bit of a hint too, because the story after shows that the disciples really just don't get what Jesus means because mm, right. they're, hey, when you get to your glory, can we sit at your right and left? Yeah. Yep. And he's like, you don't know what you're asking. Yeah. So it could be that part of the amazement is they think Jesus is going to Jerusalem for what they've expected the whole time, which is for him to sit on the throne, to cast out the Romans, and to become the messianic king that they're expecting. Well, I think at this phase, one thing we do know is, like you said, in this time period as he's heading to Jerusalem, we know that this is the time of the opposition, of antagonism. And even in John's gospel, when he shows up at the festival and they're like, yo, he's he's out here in public, <laughs> just out here <laughs> healing people and speaking. Aren't the leaders wanting to get him? Why aren't they doing anything to him yeah. when he's out there? And there's just a certain boldness yeah. that Jesus is demonstrating that seems to be somewhat indifferent or unconcerned about the consequences or potential consequences of the very people who are trying to arrest him and kill him, which was Mm -hmm. known him just being out there Mm -hmm. on the main road, Mm -hmm. talking to the people. And that's pretty astonishing to see like, wait a minute, why, how's he doing this? That's really insightful. And and that's kind of what I was getting at at the beginning when we talked about being on mission Mm -hmm. to the point of it being uncomfortable, maybe to people around you. That's kind of what I feel in this text a little bit. And to the way you're all unpacking this, you know, he's on his way marching to what's going to be his death. I mean, he's already told them, and then he makes it even more graphic. You don't normally march up to your death. You know, you don't normally, it's more like you drag yourself, and he will drag himself in the garden. But right here, that's very surprising. There's an almost unyielding determination Mm -hmm. to carry out the Father's plan Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that even gets perhaps expressed in his physical demeanor Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. And you see the humanness of his disciples. I mean, as we've seen, he's already warned them twice why they're going to Jerusalem. It's almost kind of like, 
if they're going to kill you, what are they going to do to us? You know, it's Thomas. Mm. Let's go with him so that we can die with him. You know, that kind of thing. There was a lot of interaction between Jesus and the disciples that no doubt led to a lot of interaction among the disciples. Yeah. Talking to each other about, yeah. you know, what do you think he meant by that? <laughs> what did you think when he was talking about such and such? As they get closer to Jerusalem, the pressure increases and Jesus's determination to go, I think, to accomplish the mission for which the Father sent him must have been amazing to those disciples because they've never seen anything like this before. Must have been impressive, even if they didn't completely understand what was going on, for the disciples to see how focused and committed Jesus was to moving ahead with the mission he came to fulfill. Not tremendously surprising that they would be amazed and in awe at seeing that in action. Now, before we move on, let me take just a moment to remind you that it's thanks to gifts from friends like you that we're able to provide these conversations and a lot of other Bible engagement resources to people around the world. We exist because of your generosity. And so we invite you to partner with us financially, whether you give a one-time gift or sign up to become one of our monthly Discover the Word partners. Your gift will help us invite even more people to join the conversation. Simply visit discovertheword.org and click Donate. All right, so I've got a question for you. How do you respond in moments of conflict? Well, I, for one, am not a big fan of those moments. But you may recall that on many occasions, the religious leaders attempted to challenge Jesus by posing questions that they hoped would trip him up. But Jesus always managed to surprise them, didn't he? And so our next amazing moment in Mark is one where Jesus amazed everyone with his wisdom in one of those conflict situations. Okay, have you ever had to moderate a meeting that was very contentious and uh, there was a lot of friction and upsetness in the room? And I'm not talking about leading a session of Discover the Word here, by the way. Uh, um, I'm talking about like, like when I was a pastor, I dreaded the annual congregational meeting. Hmm. And if you've had to, what was it like and what did it take? Yeah, I can remember uh, my first time really leading a team. I was uh, leading a group of young full-time music missionaries. And two of the folks in the band, the drummer and the bassist, which are, you know, the two that need to be the most in sync musically were mm-hmm. the most op- <laughs> in opposites personality-wise. <laughs> and they had multiple conflicts. And, you know, we tried to do, you know, Matthew 18. It, it was, you know, to <laughs> go to each other, work it out. It, it only got worse yeah. and it got more inflamed when they tried to talk to each other. And so we got to the phase of <laughs> mediation but the thing that I remembered so clearly was that I was a translator in the room, translating mm. English to English. Mm. But like their way of looking at things was mm. so different. Their personalities yeah. were so different. They were talking past each other. That they were hearing yeah. something totally different than what the other person was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, having a translator, you know, really did help them move along and get along. But it was intense. And that was also mm. eye opening to see how easy it is we can miss each other. One of the most difficult times I've been through, Russell's similar to that. But what ended up happening is there was a disagreement. And when it came to the surface, the person had the disagreement left. 
And that was so discouraging because in their leaving, it took away the opportunity to resolve yeah. anything. Yeah. And so then you have to yeah. interpret what you think happened. Mm. And it's difficult to heal mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, and I, I'm struggling thinking of like a gathering or beating, but I have many situations I can think of where behind the scenes meeting with this person and then meeting with that person. And yeah. one of the hardest things in those situations is knowing what's really true mm-hmm. and what's really going on because you hear this person's side then you hear the other person's side. And you know both of them are speaking things that are true and you know both of them are speaking from their perspective. And so yeah. it's so hard to know what's true there. How and to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was in a meeting recently and I was really thankful that I wasn't leading that meeting. But what I remember most about the meeting was not the resolution of it, but the moderator's wisdom hmm. in managing all of that conflict and tension mm-hmm. uh, and frustration mm-hmm. in order to bring it to a resolution. Mm-hmm. And I think wisdom like that can be really rare. And that's why I was glad I wasn't leading that meeting because I wouldn't have been able to handle it the way that yeah. this person did. They handled it brilliantly and wisely. But when you see wisdom like that at work, it's really refreshing. Mm -hmm. It's really refreshing because what it does is it releases the tension. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that the one Paul described as coming to us as wisdom from God, Jesus, Mm. would be able to handle touchy and delicate situations with great wisdom. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, as we'll see in this text today, amazing wisdom. By engaging, Uh, which is kind of different from often how we talk about wisdom, because often we'll say wisdom is, oh, they avoided talking about Mm -hmm. it, or they avoided the conflict. He's so wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, Jesus hits it head on. So in our last conversation, we were just ready to bump into the triumphal entry. Now we're during Holy Week or Passion Week. And what's happening in Mark chapter 12, which is the focus of our conversation this time, what's happening is a series of shame-honor contests. And I'll confess that that was an idea that was very new to me Mm -hmm. until I read Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien. And they came and helped us here discover the word to wrestle with some of those things. But Daniel, Mm -hmm. talk us briefly through a shame-honor contest and how it differs from a conversation, perhaps. Yeah. So I, too, am pulling off of Uh, them, (laughs) not from the book, but from when they spent time with us. And I would encourage people to listen to those conversations because they were so helpful. The biggest thing I remember from those conversations is pointing out that when someone comes and asks a question publicly, out loud in front of others, that's where we see a shame-honor conflict happening. And in a shame-and-honor culture, the idea is that there's kind of like a bucket full of honor And by having a shame-honor conflict with someone, especially if they're like a rival teacher or something like that, by asking them a question they can't answer, but you have an answer for, it would like increase the honor in your bucket and decrease the honor in their bucket um, and kind of their standing communally. And so what we see here in this series is a bunch of out loud questions in front of crowds, in front of other people, 
where the religious leaders are asking Jesus these questions in a way to increase their honor as the goal and decrease his honor. Yeah, exactly right. And just as an aside, that more than anything else helped me to understand Nicodemus. I'd always kind of heard Nicodemus presented as the guy who came at night because he didn't really want to be seen talking to Jesus. And when I understood the shame honor component, no, it wasn't that he didn't want to be seen with Jesus is that he was not coming to be confrontational with Jesus. He really wanted answers to his questions. Mm -hmm. And so he came for a private audience rather than coming at Jesus in a public setting. And so that's what we get here. And if we, begin with verse 13 and read through verse 17. And y'all can just read around if you want. Elisa, why don't you start verse 13 through 17? This is the beginning of a series of these shame honor contests. This is in Mark chapter 12. Uh, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. That phrase is so descriptive of the shame honor, isn't it? They came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Mm -hmm. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Yeah, my text says they were amazed at him. This is wisdom Mm -hmm. in action right here. And what bumps up the level of friction and tension is you got some strange bedfellows here in the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were ultra-nationalists. The Herodians were those who were followers of the Herods who were vassal kings of the Romans, Mm -hmm. see? So you have both sides of the argument. Is it right? The Herodians would say, absolutely, it's right. The Pharisees Mm -hmm. would say, well, we're not so sure, you know. So you have both sides represented, and they present Jesus with this test case, Uh Mm -hmm. which would have been a conversation that was had in synagogues throughout Israel on a constant basis. Because nobody likes paying taxes mm-hmm. to this day. <laughs> and, and, and especially nobody likes paying taxes to a conquering, opposing government mm-hmm. that has taken possession of you and your land. So they say, is it lawful? Is it the right thing to do? Should we do this? And Jesus's response just drips with wisdom. What does he say? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. Yeah. Well, and first he asked them a question. Yeah, his <laughs> in response image is to on a it, question, true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. Yeah, he says, why are you it. testing me? Mm-hmm. Right. I love that. Because, Calls them out. Mm-hmm. Because they're trying to be all flowery. Like, we know you're this really good teacher. And wow, you you know, you don't show favoritism. We really want your, no, they don't. And he knows they don't. And so he calls them out Mm -hmm. in front of the group in this shame honor contest. So bring me a denarius, a coin that many think represented a day's wage. Mm -hmm. And he says, whose likeness is on it? Well, Caesar's likeness is on it. Okay. Give him what belongs to him and give God what belongs to God. And the whole point of the story is, 
your money might have Caesar's image on it, but you're made in the image of God. Mm. Everything you are belongs to God. Mm -hmm. And it just raises the discussion to such higher ground Mm. than what they could have ever imagined when they stepped into the ring with Jesus (laughs) Mm -hmm. and tried to to have a battle of wits with him. One thing that might be helpful too to just pull out is this story starts with, then they sent to him some Pharisees and Herodians. And it's like, well, wait, who's they? And you have to go all the way back to verse 18 of chapter 11. When the chief priests and the scribes heard it, heard about Jesus cleansing the temple, they kept looking for a way to kill him for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound, speaking of amazement, by by his teaching. And then we see shame and honor conflict, shame and honor conflict, shame and honor conflict. And it's interesting because there's an alliance between all of these different religious groups because the very next story is about the Sadducees. They're yeah. like, okay, well, we'll take our stab now mm-hmm. <laughs> at, at trapping Jesus. And, and then so. the last one to come is a scribe. Mm-hmm. In one of the gospel accounts, the scribe, it says, seeing that Jesus answered well. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. this is unexpected. I have a real question I want to ask, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. What is the greatest yeah. commandment, that, that, that story? So, and I think why that's helpful is just because it's not just this one instance of Jesus's wisdom, but it's a series of oh, very wise long couple of questions chapters. and yeah. responses that mm-hmm. lead to that moment with yeah. the scribe of amazement. Yeah. And once again, they are amazed at him and at the wisdom that he shows and and again, you know, what's really interesting about all this is that when the religious leaders and the Pharisees accuse Jesus before Pilate, one of the things they lift up in Luke 23 is that he is subverting our nation, forbidding us to pay the tribute tax to Caesar. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what Jesus mm-hmm. did. He, he did not yeah say don't pay the tax he said give caesar what belongs to caesar yeah and it's also a uh, tragic irony that these folks who were all about the nation of israel is actually using a foreign government an occupying force mm-hmm. to yeah. say that his allegiance he is not to them he's not loyal to them that's a weird accusation to be making for some people that's supposed to be representing the people and it just shows how desperate they were Mm -hmm. to come up with some type of charge to execute and they're getting in league with their own oppressors right yeah Yeah. right and so jesus's wisdom here is amazing Mm -hmm. and maybe it shouldn't be because he's jesus but again rightly understood everything about jesus is pretty amazing when we think about it and here what's amazing is his wisdom in the midst of a highly contentious situation yeah this truly is another amazing moment we find in the gospel of mark amazed at jesus wisdom when answering this question that was meant to trip him up and in some way discredit him There was a lot of tension, a lot of conflict in this event, but Jesus amazes with his wisdom. Well, this is Discover the Word, and in just a moment, Bill and Elisa and Daniel and Rasul will continue with another amazing moment that shows how Jesus reacted to being accused of something he didn't do. So how do you respond when someone makes serious and false accusations against you? Do you defend yourself? Maybe look for a way to exact some revenge on them? Well, next, they'll unpack the powerful 
an astonishing way that Jesus responded to his accusers. We'll get to that after we take a short break. Now, during that last part of the conversation, they referred to some of our past episodes of Discover the Word that have shaped us and shaped how we study here on Discover the Word. Several times, we've had Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien at the table with us, misreading scripture with Western eyes, misreading Paul, what goes without being said, and then earlier this year, Paul, the letter writer. Those are all series that uh, we would highly recommend you listen to, and you have access to them via the archive section of our discovertheword.org website. To listen to those, for simplicity's sake, just go to discovertheword.org and click on the archive dropdown up at the top of the page. Then type in the search bar, Randy Richards' name, and you'll see those helpful conversations that we had with them. Again, type in Randy Richards to search our archives for those programs. And of course, you'll also find a lot more there in our archives at discovertheword.org. Let's join this next part of the conversation now as the group talks about the power of silence and another one of those amazing moments in the Gospel of Mark. You familiar with the expression, silence is golden? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is it true? Depends on the context. I got to share this. Um, my father liked to be a man of few words. That's kind of how he liked to position himself. He had this quote in his office. It's from Charles de Gaulle. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he said, nothing more enhances authority than silence. It is the crowning virtue of the strong, the refuge of the weak, the modesty of the proud, the pride of the humble, the prudence of the wise, and the sense of fools. To speak is to dissipate one's strength. Hmm. Isn't that Mm -hmm. interesting? Yeah. Yeah, especially that he had that on the wall. This is where I have to be pretty transparent. So as an extreme extrovert who likes to talk, I have found that I have had to learn the value of silence. And <laughs> I used to be n- getting nervous and uncomfortable if I was in a meeting mm-hmm. and there was like no talking. Because after the meeting, like my wife, who's an introvert, would be like, it was fine. You didn't have to keep talking. So I started to do a, a trick where I would just kind of count and breathe and just <laughs> be, sit on my hands mm-hmm. so that I wouldn't just jump in and try to fill the air with noise. But So I like it but I, it's hard for me. Yeah. yeah. And I've often heard wisdom defined as knowing when to speak and when to stay silent mm-hmm. yeah. because there are times when speaking matters and is important. Yeah. I think it was Aristotle that said, the fool speaks because he has to say something. The wise speaks because he has something to say. Um, we're going to think about silence a little bit, but we're not going to have silence. We're going to talk about silence, which is kind of counterintuitive. For the next 10 minutes on our, it's just going to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be what they call dead air. But there are times when silence can be uncomfortable mm-hmm. and even disturbing. Like you were saying, Russell, when you're in a meeting and somebody asks a question and nobody answers, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, Oh, this is awkward. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are times when silence can be uncomfortable, but there are times when it can be comforting. I, I remember the story of Job in the in the book <laughs> of Job. It said Job's three friends came and sat with him for seven days mm. in his grief, and they didn't say anything. But boy, when they start talking, we got a problem. Yeah, right. So there was a, a period of time there for Job when silence really was golden to him. Yeah, and that's a great example because. As Christians, we can be so bad about walking into really rough, difficult circumstances and just start talking. Mm -hmm. 
And people that are experiencing true grief or true brokenness or horrible circumstances, the last thing they need to hear is some, you know, trite Christianese phrase to try to make them feel better. Sometimes the most loving, kind thing we could do is just sit there in silence with them in their yeah. pain. Yeah, our presence sometimes is much more valuable than our words. Mm-hmm. We're going to see a time in Jesus's life where he was silent and his silence was amazing. And uh, we've been walking through together the Gospel of Mark. And it's kind of an odd way to journey through the book of Mark, just tracking this idea of people being amazed by Jesus. But we really started in chapter 1, and in this conversation, we're all the way up to the next to last chapter, chapter 15. <laughs> we already know that we're in the Passion Week. And when we come to chapter 15, Jesus is in the midst of a series of illegal trials. The Jewish trials have ended, and they have, as we saw Jesus predict in an earlier conversation, the Jews have now handed Jesus over to the Gentiles, who in this case is the Roman authority, who is? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, Caesar's representative, right. Right. Now, Bill, you just said illegal trials. Illegal. Yeah, the trials before the Jewish leaders were illegal for a variety of reasons, not least of which was it was against Jewish law to have a trial at night. Mm -hmm. That was one of like a half a dozen things that contributed to the illegality of those trials, Mm. yeah. Now they bring Jesus with their condemnation to Pilate, and that's where we pick it up. Rizul, would you give us Mark 15, verses 1 through 5, please? Sure. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Hmm. Pilate was amazed that Jesus wouldn't answer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, as we've had to do in a few times, the scriptures don't get into Pilate's mind for us and tell us what the root of the amazement was. I mean, we know it's the silence, but why? What mm-hmm. about the silence amazed him? And I think there are some possibilities, but I'd like for us to wrestle with that for a little bit because it is an interesting moment. Maybe it was like what you were describing. He, he, just, he just thinks there's this really awkward moment and he wishes Jesus would say something and maybe let him off the hook a little bit. Well, you would think that Jesus would defend himself at a kind of a moment Mm -hmm. like this. And maybe his amazement is simply that instead of taking that opportunity, I mean, Jesus has wisely confronted falsehoods. (laughs) He has Mm -hmm. very wisely used his voice, and he doesn't here. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be very surprising. Yeah, especially because Pilate knows he's innocent. And throughout the rest of the Gospels, we get this picture of Pilate even saying to the people, I don't see any reason for this. Mm -hmm. His wife warns him, don't get involved in this man's death. Mm -hmm. He does everything he can to try to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And so even he has this awareness of Jesus's innocence and probably is expecting him to say something that would be like, yes, you know, I have to let him go because of his response, maybe even to let him get off the hook Mm -hmm. as he desires. Yeah. I just think about it. Like if I'm in Jesus's 
shoes or if someone is accusing me, a group of people mm-hmm. are accusing me mm-hmm. and of things I didn't do, things I didn't say. And, it, and it's in a legal context it, with someone who could possibly execute me. We already said my penchant for talking. I would have had a lot to say. Yeah. And I think most people would yeah. just instinctively look to defend themselves. So, in that sense, for someone to calmly just be silent in the face of that type of opposition is astonishing. We've talked in other conversations, though, about how intent Jesus was on his mission. Mm-hmm. And what can he do here? I mean, yeah. if he's the one thing he could do is he could use that platform mm-hmm. to yet again mm-hmm. express what needs to happen. But he mm-hmm. doesn't. He'll do that from the platform of the cross. Yes. Mm. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mm. You know. He also could have just, we talked in our last conversation about they had tried to trap him with this situation with taxes. And then in the Luke account, they're saying, hey, by the way, Pilate and Caesar, he said we shouldn't pay taxes. That's a problem, right? I mean, yeah. Jesus's response could have been like, actually... Pilot, I said they should give to Caesar what's Caesar's, right? So there's all these little things he yeah. could have said in mm-hmm. that context. Mm-hmm. History tells us that this kind of silence was rare in Roman courts. Okay. Uh, and I, I'm kind of with you, Russell. I think it'd be rare in any court. I mean, it'd mm-hmm. be rare on Judge Judy uh, for somebody <laughs> well, to be accused and then just stand there in silence. It would be super rare on Judge Judy. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, there's a sense in which Jesus's silence is disarming, Mm -hmm. but it's also fulfilling because there's Old Testament prophecy that describes this very scene. Uh, Elisa, would you read Isaiah 53, verse 7? Okay. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Wow. Like this is the script Jesus was given. Yeah. Uh, And again, of all the things that were prophesied about Messiah, Jesus left none of those unfulfilled, including this one. I mean, Mm -hmm. to the point where Pilate was amazed. The Isaiah words anticipate Mm -hmm. Jesus' silence. First Peter reflects on it. Would you read Mm -hmm. first Peter 2, 21 to 23, Daniel? For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Yeah, one of the great themes of First Peter is the theme of suffering well. And obviously, Jesus is the ultimate example of suffering well. And so the silence he speaks in the face of what I think could legitimately define as the greatest injustice in human history is really profound. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's amazing to think, you know, as we've tried to put ourselves in Pilate's place here, it's amazing to think how he felt about it. Mm-hmm. all of this you know if he didn't want to say jesus give me something to work with here. yeah help pretty, me out pretty much help me said. help you yeah. you know that kind of thing yeah i've wondered what happens to Pilate after mm-hmm. just after this interaction with jesus after seeing him crucified probably hearing from the soldiers like yeah he even forgave everybody yeah. on the cross and then after the resurrection, like what went through Pilate's mind so much later as he reflected on this situation himself? Probably more amazement. Yeah. 
Well, there are some actual ancient histories that say that uh, eventually he was dishonorably removed from his post in Jerusalem because his rule there was so controversial and inflammatory um, on a number of levels, and that he ended up going back to Rome where eventually he died by suicide. Mm -hmm. And that kind of parallel to Judas Mm -hmm. and his role in the story. Yet along the way, here's this amazing moment when faced with all of these accusations that are false, that are seeking his death, Jesus suffers in silence and he suffers well. And it's amazing. Yeah, this one sure is, isn't it? Uh, We've heard the story of those moments leading up to the cross so many times, but it never gets easier to hear how Jesus suffered in so many ways. And how, as we discovered again there, Jesus amazed with his silence in that situation. All right, well, one more amazing moment to go. And of all the remarkable things Jesus did and said while he was on earth, in this closing segment, we'll talk about what may have been the most amazing. What do you think was the most amazing moment? Well, we'll find out in the final installment in this fascinating series as the team reveals maybe the most amazing moment in Mark. It's coming up after we look ahead to where the group goes in the next edition of our Discover the Word podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Daniel Ryan Day leads the group in focusing on a single word, one word, that shows up again and again when you're reading the Old Testament. In this series, we're going to learn about a word in the Bible that comes with an implied promise. It's a word that actually we talk about pretty often on Discover the Word, the word chesed, where you kind of have to clear your throat a little bit. (laughs) And that word's used 180 times-ish in the Old Testament. And it's one of the primary ways that God introduces himself to the world. So that feels like it has a little bit of weight. Mm -hmm. And it's perhaps the biggest promise that God makes to humanity. Yeah, discover what chesed means and why understanding this word may have a major impact on how you read your Bible. Daniel, Elisa, Bill, and Rasul are back for a study simply called Chesed on the next Discover the Word podcast. And so now, let's listen to the group's final thoughts on the nine amazing moments in the Gospel of Mark with that number one amazing moment. Well, we come to the conclusion of what I hope has been an encouraging and interesting couple of weeks of conversations on amazing moments in Mark. And um, just to review for our sake, as well as for our listeners, what are some of the things that people were amazed at about Jesus? Mm. We started with looking at his teaching and, you know, Mm -hmm. it ran contrary to expectations and yet it had such authority that it was shocking and surprising and it knocked everybody off balance. Yeah. Yeah. We also looked at Legion and the man that was demonized by a lot of demons and how when Jesus cured him, healed him, removed the demons, it had a lot of people amazed and afraid Mm -hmm. and even unhappy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we saw there some times in the stories when Mm -hmm. amazement and fear kind of go together, right? right? Sure. I think I'm still thinking about the conversation we had about um, how wise Jesus was and especially 
conflict that was out loud in front of people. And we can just read those stories and think of any number of ways that Jesus could have responded. But then we read the way he responded in those situations. And it's Mm -hmm. like, wow, I would have never thought of Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it, it was very amazing to this day, reading how Jesus responded to very contentious situations. Yeah, that's good. Okay, as we reflect on this a little bit longer, um, what were some of the different kinds of people that are described as being amazed? Well, for sure, as disciples. I mean, oh, they yeah. were constantly they, amazed. They, were, they had front row seats for all <laughs> yeah. this, right? I love the amazement of the crowds. Like when they mm. hear them teach, I could just kind of see, you know, mm. imagine everybody be like, you know, putting oh, their wow. head, hands on their heads like, yo, did you just hear that? Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And some of the religious leaders themselves mm-hmm. are amazed at Jesus's responses and things like that. In fact, in that section about Jesus's wisdom, uh, Bill, you mentioned the scribe that comes to him and realizes after hearing Jesus, wow, that was really well said, <laughs> and then asks him a question, and then the scribe responds w- with a good answer, and Jesus goes, that was pretty wise of you. <laughs> and so there's like this wide wisdom back yeah. and forth, yeah. which is kind of fun. And yeah. then Pilate. I yeah. mean, yeah. that's really, I mean, you stand in Pilate's shoes, and here's an a innocent man brought before you and he doesn't defend himself yeah. I, mm-hmm. I think Pilate was stunned yeah. at Jesus's silence yeah uh, all these times and we saw and we didn't get a whole lot into it but we saw that there are a variety of words that Mark uses to describe mm-hmm. amazement sometimes it could be astonishment or knocked senseless mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> just a variety of really graphic mm-hmm. words in the Greek language that all end up kind of getting translated amazed or Mm -hmm. amazing. So awe and wonder. Yeah. Awe and wonder. And we're going to come to our last episode and fittingly it is Jesus's response to the accusations of the religious leaders and the condemnation of Pilate and all that stuff. And his great response, all that is the resurrection, Mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. So Mark chapter 16 uh, verses one through six and each of you, why don't you, each of you take a couple of verses and just read around through Mark 16, 1 through 6. Sure, I can start. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. You know, of all the times to say, don't be amazed, <laughs> yeah. uh, they walk into the empty tomb. Oh, don't be surprised. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, and the NRSV says alarmed. So I'm yeah. guessing that's oh. a different version of, of yeah. amazement that we've been looking at. Mm. So they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed. By the way, um, it's a compound verb speaking of strong emotion and expressing overwhelming distress at something which is highly unusual. <laughs> and Mark is the only New Testament writer who uses that word. The word alarmed, amazed. And, and you know, if you dig down deep there would be some fear that somebody had rolled away the stone and somebody had stolen his body. Mm -hmm. So that could be underneath some of that. Yeah, and we see that even 
in John chapter 20 with Mary Magdalene, her first inclination is to assume that somebody's come and stolen the body. Especially Jesus's body. Mm-hmm. Because now on one hand, he's a condemned person from Rome and that would put fear in anybody to mess with his tomb. But at the same time, after all the miracles, after all the things he had accomplished, everything he had said, everything he had said um, and just think about all the mystery and desire that people have had over having a piece of Jesus clothing or things like that mm-hmm. later in life, there would be a very real mm-hmm. desire from a superstitious standpoint yeah. to have access to it. Well, especially body, for a, a people whose national history and national memory included the story of Elisha, whose body had been in the grave for a year so that the meat was gone and all was left of the bones. And some guys in a funeral procession throw a dead man's body in there. They hit Elisha's bones and he comes back to life. I mean, what? it's one of the craziest stories in the Bible. <laughs> um, but if that was true with Elisha's bones, you could expect people mm-hmm. with that in their national memory to project some of that perhaps onto Jesus. There's a whole lot going on here, and you know we can talk a lot about the fact that in the amazing moments w- that we've seen, this is one where really the amazement focuses on the women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's part of the story because women were such an important part of Jesus's ministry, and we know that the disciples are in hiding for fear mm-hmm. of the Jews, that they're going to get the same thing Jesus got. But here are the women just kind of mm-hmm. courageously going. They don't have any answers. They don't have any great spiritual idea that Jesus is risen. They're just going because this is their one last opportunity to serve him by anointing his body, you know. But here they are, courageously no doubt brokenheartedly, mm-hmm. lovingly, but here they are. Mm-hmm. And the result is they are amazed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they go with a question, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? <laughs> so in some ways they're planned because they're bringing things to use to anoint his body, but they're also like, what are we going to do? All the guys stayed home. Isn't that, isn't <laughs> right? that just amazing? What do they think's going to happen? Yeah. They're not going to be able to get that yeah, stone. Yeah, maybe moved. they're hoping they can talk the soldiers into doing it or yeah. something because <laughs> we know there were soldiers that were guarding the tomb. They were amazed. And it's a little bit, to me, unclear whether they're amazed at the empty tomb or amazed at the young man who mm-hmm. scholars believe was a an angel who was there, I think, just to kind of help them through this mm-hmm shocking moment. Yeah, it's it's hard to know. I, I can imagine that they were expecting a dead body of Jesus, and instead they encounter a, a white-robed angel. That's pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unexpected. Mm-hmm. What do you make of him saying, don't be amazed? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, that might be the most amazing thing we've seen in all these discussions, <laughs> is somebody telling them not to be amazed that Jesus mm-hmm. is risen. I think it goes back to the word alarmed. I think that's why that was helpful for yeah. me. It's because what he's saying is, is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is basically what he's saying, which is why he says, do not be alarmed. Well, and he's saying, you're looking for Jesus, the one of Nazareth, who's been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. So mm-hmm. he clarifies the body's not stolen. Yeah. You really did see him die. He kind of answers their unspoken questions mm-hmm. and puts them at ease. Which, I'm yes, a, give them I'm peace. I'm going to throw a little wrinkle oh, to that, okay. though. I mean, I do think that that's definitely, you know, helpful to think about just the sense of disorientation that yeah. that is. But I also think about when Peter says, 
brothers and sisters, when you experience various kinds of trials, don't be amazed. Don't be like, don't be shocked that this is surprised. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when I think about how clear we even in a passage we read uh, in Mark about what Jesus said that he was going to do and how he kind of rebuked them for their slow to believe. I wonder if there's a possibility that some of the don't be amazed is like, why are you acting like you didn't know that this was the plan all Mm -hmm. along? Mm -hmm. You know, don't be shocked. A little bit of a correction. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We saw in an earlier conversation in one of the amazing moments that three different times as they made their way to Jerusalem, Jesus told them, I have to go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I'll be taken and scourged and hated and accused and condemned by the religious leaders, handed over to the Gentiles. But in each one of those three, after mm-hmm. he talks about his being put to death, he says, and will rise again the third yeah, day, yeah. every time. And, you know, in a way, in John's account of Mary at the tomb, there's a similar kind of correction. You know, don't hold on to me. Go instead mm-hmm. to my brothers. Uh, you know, she thinks he's a gardener, and he's like, I'm Jesus. So, you know, there probably is a little, almost like you see somebody in shock, and you slap them across the face a little bit, Hey, are you yeah. with me? Are you with mm-hmm. me? Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't work because mm-hmm. <laughs> in verse eight, so they went out, fled Trembling. from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Yeah. Whoa. Mm. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that some parts of biblical scholarship argue for the longer ending of Mark, because it's hard to imagine the good news of Jesus ending with them not telling anyone because they're scared. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, that just doesn't seem like an appropriate way to conclude mm. the gospel story. What's interesting is that when Paul is on trial before King Agrippa decades later, as he's recounting what has brought him here, and it's what's brought him here is his faith and service to Jesus. And he says to King Agrippa, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? Mm. You know, I just think, you know, no matter how many things they saw Jesus do, I mean, he raised people from the dead. So there's one sense in which Don't be amazed. I mean, he raised people from the dead. Why should you be surprised that he himself was raised from the dead? But you know what? In moments of grief and heartache, we don't think logically all the time. We don't think objectively. We think emotively. And it's easy to lose sight of, in this case, even huge volumes of evidence that Jesus told them this was going to happen multiple times. He displayed this happening multiple times, but that's not what's front of mind when you're grieving. Right. Right. And I think that's a word uh, for us because the other thing that I think about that is amazing every time I read it is in John 14, 12, when it says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works Mm -hmm. than these will he do because I'm going to the father. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like the sense in which Going back to, you know, us reflecting on how sometimes our lives can be so busy and full of clutter and technology that we're not even we've almost ceased to have the ability to be amazed. And there's an aspect where the Lord is saying, don't be amazed about being amazed (laughs) because (laughs) being amazed, doing greater works is good. Having your soul saved, continuing to be conformed to my image, seeing miracles take place is the new normal for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am the God of the impossible. With me, all things are possible. I trust for our listeners that this has been a beneficial little jet 
tour, in a sense, through the book of Mark. And I would encourage you, we've just talked about the places where it explicitly states that people were amazed. Everything about the Gospel of Mark, everything about the story of Jesus is amazing. And I would just encourage our listeners, if you want to kind of re-immerse yourself into that amazing story, in the four Gospels, there are a total of 89 chapters. So if you read three chapters a day, you can read through the Gospels in a month. I'd encourage you to read about our Lord and to be amazed. That's a great challenge from Bill. Take the next 30 days and read through the Gospels. Or do that for several months in a row and just immerse yourself in the life of Jesus. You'll be different when you come out the other end of reading just three chapters in the Gospels every day. You may be amazed at the way it impacts you. Because for sure, people were amazed by Jesus when he was here on earth. But we still have amazing moments with Jesus today. And I think that exercise might be a way for you to recognize that in your life. You're listening to Discover the Word alongside Bill Crowder, Lisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasula Berry. And that wraps up our Bible study team's two-part study on amazing moments in Mark. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. We'll see you next time for that series about how understanding chesed can transform how you think about God and how you read your Bible. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. 